to Old Testament Studies and Unacademic Modern History. My name is Nick, and my goal is to bring Old Testament scholarship from the ivory towers of academia to the common language of every podcast listener. I want to break down the technical conversations and methods of analyzing the Old Testament so that everyone can be involved in the academic conversations about what the Old Testament is, where it came from, and what its message is. Each episode, I want to look at the life and academic contributions of one modern Old Testament scholar to understand how their ideas developed and show their impact on our understanding of the Old Testament. This episode, and the next one, will flow together really well. Both scholars lived about the same time frame, but had very different views of Old Testament history. Hewitt is the more conservative, and we will deal with him this week. And I am specifically focusing on him first to show the continuity with older scholarship and the subtle moves that he makes to move away from earlier thought. This will be a backdrop that Spencer, in our next episode, will break from quite sharply. But this week, Pierre Daniel Hewitt. He is also known as Hewettius, and he was born in 1630 in Seine in Normandy, northern France. His father was a Calvinist turned Catholic, but died when Hewitt was three years old. He was an advisor to the king before he died, and when Hewitt turned six, his mother died as well. And so he went to live with his uncle, who was an astronomy professor, with his three sisters. And then his uncle died, so his aunt had to take care of Hewitt and his sisters. Rough childhood. Anyways, at eight years old, Hewitt went into a Jesuit college and learned Latin and Greek in addition to his normal coursework. He then completed his public defense in mathematics, astronomy, and philosophy to graduate at 16 years old in 1646. He studied civil and canon law, canon being the religious law, at the University of Sand after he had graduated. At 18, he studied René Descartes' Principia Philosophiae, keeping in mind that this work came out in 1644, so it was only four years old at this point. So René Descartes was still alive, and Cartesian philosophy was cutting edge. If Descartes isn't ringing a bell, he is the one who said, I think, therefore I am. Grossly taken out of context by most, but that was his big contribution. He is also widely considered the father of modern philosophy, and he died in 1650. So Hewitt's career is overlapping, or at least his early career is overlapping with the end of Descartes' career, and much of what he writes is in response to this Cartesian philosophy. Back to Hewitt. While he was studying at the University of Seine, remembering he was about 18 years old, he befriended a Reformed pastor and scholar named Samuel Beauchart, who specialized in Hebrew and geography of the Holy Land. 
1650, Hewitt took several trips to Paris to find books for his library and interact with the intellectual elites in the academy there. In 1652, Beauchart, the scholar, invited Hewitt to visit Queen Christine in Sweden, where he interacted with scholars, copied manuscripts from their libraries, met princes, and talked with the queen about French, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, among many other academic topics. When he returned to Seine, he was accepted into the academy there. At this point in 1652, he was a young man of means without an occupation. So he enjoyed leisure activities like composing poems in Latin, don't we all? And meeting weekly with the academy to discuss intellectual topics. In case you're wondering what the intellectual academies are that I'm referring to, they are not academies in the school sense that we know them now, but academies like learned societies where people get together, have dinner, drink some wine, and talk about nerdy topics no one else in the world cares about. What Hewitt spent his time doing in his early life. He published some of his literary works and in 1661, he published a work on the translation of ancient texts based primarily on his encounter with the text of the early church father Origen. If you know anything about the Renaissance and the early modern period, you know they were obsessed with returning to ancient thought and texts. In fact, Renaissance means a reflourishing or refounding. Right? The word itself is bringing back the old things. So they were all rediscovering the old texts and ideas and trying to go back to this glorious time of ancient Greece and Rome. And his retranslating of origin is not all that surprising in that context. Anyhow, Hewitt found his own academy in 1670, and this was dedicated to the hard sciences like physics and biology and astronomy and what everyone loves, math. However, when he departed to the French court in 1670, that academy in Seine dissolved. So in 1670, he was named assistant instructor of the Crown Prince Louis. He became famous for publishing a collection of texts which were cleansed of the scandalous passages so that they could be used for the prince's education. They may be great classic texts, but take out the dirty parts, right? Anyways, the prince got married in 1680, and Hewitt's tenure as assistant tutor ended. However, during this time from 1670 to 1680, Hewitt did not just tutor. In 1671, Hewitt received his minor orders for the priesthood and was eventually ordained. In 1674, Hewitt was accepted into the Académie Française, which is the big French academy in Paris. Again, not education school academy, but rich, snobby people with a lot of knowledge and money academy. So Hewitt received an appointment at the Abbey of Aulnay-sur-Audon, as a reward for his tutoring in 1678. And he visited there in the summers, but moved permanently in 1680, 
when his tutoring ended. In 1685, the king recommended him to become bishop of Soissons, but in 1692, Hewitt took the diocese of Avranches instead because of a dispute that was happening between Louis XIV and the Curia. So in 1699, he gave up his office because of health reasons and was entrusted with the Abbey of Fontenay near Seine, which is again where he was from. In 1701, he moved in with the Jesuits in Paris and lived with them for about 20 years, eventually becoming blind and deaf, and he died just short of 91 in 1721 in Paris. I want to talk about his contributions to scholarship and specifically Old Testament studies, but first, let's take a break. So Hewitt's work, like many during this time, spans philosophical, religious, and naturalist subjects. He engaged in debates with Cartesian philosophy and the interaction of faith and reason, and though he contributed to these areas significantly, they do lie a little bit outside of our scope. Since this podcast is about the Old Testament, I am going to jettison some of the broader philosophical discussions and focus as squarely as I can on his biblical and Old Testament work. That is not to say he did not make great achievements in these areas, but that is the subject of another podcast. Anyways, Hewitt's apologetic work is Demonstratio Evangelica. In this, he attempts to define the Christian faith by showing proofs. It is in a fairly Aristotelian method where definitions and axioms are provided to reason the reader into the validity of the Bible. He is trying to show that biblical text is reliable and the events that the biblical text record what actually happened. Though the book covers the entire Bible, I'm going to focus primarily on Proposition 4, which is the Old Testament section. So after explaining the validity of the New Testament, Hewitt explains, quote, The books of the Old Testament are authentic. They are namely written by the composers who were said to have written them, and approximately at the times in which they were to have been written, end quote. So in this statement, Hewitt claims that all the books of the Hebrew Bible were older than Ezra. 
Ezra is the last author according to the traditional date of the canon. So all of the Hebrew Bible was older than Ezra, and the Greek translation, being the Septuagint, is older than the time of Jesus. It is obviously later than the Hebrew that is that it is based upon. Remember, the Greek is a translation and some additions to the Hebrew text, so it's later than the Hebrew, but earlier than Jesus. Also, note that the superscriptions are also authentic. So Jeremiah wrote the book of Jeremiah. David wrote the Psalms assigned to David. If you believe that the authors wrote the books that are assigned to them, then it would make sense that the date of the books are before the last living character being Ezra, because they were written by the characters in the books, right? But this is a prelude to his big argument. His biggest concern is what do we do with the books of Moses? They don't explicitly say they were written by Moses. Also, were all five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, found when Josiah restored the temple, or just Deuteronomy? Were bits and pieces of them found and it was later made into the hole that we have now? If you aren't familiar with Josiah, he was a king of Judah shortly before the invasion of the Babylonians who instituted a temple reform. In 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings, he is listed as one of the few good kings who started worshiping God properly. And one of his big innovations was to find the law scroll and teach the people how to worship God properly. So this is far from the time of Moses. By traditional dates, Moses lived around 1500 BC, while Josiah lived around 600 BC. So a huge time gap. But one is traditionally said to have written the law and the other to have rediscovered it almost a thousand years later. Well, many scholars and a few early church fathers would have said that Josiah discovered Deuteronomy, which is book five, and the retelling of the law. Remember, Deuteros means two, Namas means law. This is the second giving of the law, so just that one book of Deuteronomy. However, Hewitt, ever the conservative, says that Josiah discovered all five books and all of them were written by Moses. One of his reasons is that he believes Moses put all five books of the law into the Ark of the Covenant. So when Josiah opened up the Ark of the Covenant, he found all five books sitting there. Again, for those of us unfamiliar with the story of the Exodus, here's a brief overview. <laughs> when Moses led the people out of Egypt and to Mount Sinai, they built the Ark of the Covenant. This was just a big box with some gold cherubim on the top, and the box went inside the tabernacle, which they also built and traveled around with. Anyhow, God would come down and visit on the top of this box, and incense was offered in front of it. The text in Exodus says that Moses put the tablets into the box, but it isn't entirely clear what tablets. Many rabbis and modern believers would say 
that it was the Ten Commandments. These are those two styrofoam panels that Charlton Heston holds when he bellows, Behold the Ten Commandments! In the movie called The Ten Commandments? Yeah, those ones, just the the brief ones everyone's familiar with. You know, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not covet your neighbor's wife, all of that. So, back to Hewitt. Though most would say that only these Ten Commandments were placed within the Ark of the Covenant, Hewitt believed that all of the Pentateuch, the whole first five books of the Old Testament, was put in there. And Josiah found all of this text unadulterated, written from the hands of Moses. The authenticity of the Law of Moses and the age of it, in Hewitt's mind, is proven by the heathen peoples. Follow me on this one. So Hewitt claims that Tammuz and Adonis may actually be the same as Moses because they were deified heroes who were also lawgivers. He also claims that Phoenicians, Canaanites, and Egyptians derived their laws from Moses, and the Persians brought Mosaic knowledge to India, and the Greeks brought it to Rome. So the quote-unquote heathen fables appropriated Mosaic knowledge. So another example, Osiris is the same as Moses, and so is Zoroaster from Zoroastrianism in Persia. However, Hewitt does not stop with Indian and Egyptian religion deriving from Moses, but goes as far as the Britons, not the British, but the Britons from pre-British, pre-Roman times, but goes as far as the Britons and the Native Americans. He even claims that the Mexican god, and I'm going to butcher my Nahuatl, but the Mexican god's Teutl reflects the Egyptian deity Thoth. And they got the human sacrifice concepts from the Phoenicians who must have sailed to modern-day Mexico to bring this human sacrifice concept. Notice two presuppositions here. First, all non-biblical deities are fictitious and mostly based upon mythologizing human events. Number one. Number two, Moses antedated all other religions. Since they are patterned after him, he had to be existing before all of them. I'm giving the briefest of overviews here. I know that it might seem like Hewitt was naive, but he definitely was not. He was a humanist, and studied many of these global traditions as well as they were known at his time. He had in-depth discussions about laws that were similar between the Old Testament and Indian philosophies and ancient Greek and Roman and Egyptian and Native American traditions, as well as so many others. He was familiar with laws and customs from all over the world. 
He also addressed how these laws could have spread, especially since the Israelites were fairly insular and Hebrew was not a universal language in Old Testament times. He claimed that the Paleo-Hebrew alphabet was widespread, he called it Samaritan, and derived from Chaldean, what is later Assyria and Babylon on the eastern part of the Near East. And this used to be the mother tongue of Abraham. When Abraham picked up Canaanite, later called Hebrew, he used this Samaritan alphabet. The text which was later written by Moses in Hebrew using the Samaritan alphabet was carried to distant places by the Phoenicians, who were, and still are, known to be sailors and merchants all throughout the Mediterranean and perhaps even further. All of that is to say that Hewitt definitely was thinking through the historical issues and development very, very deeply. Hewitt also discusses what other scholars of his day questioned about Mosaic authorship. The books of Moses talk about his own death. They also use city names that came after the conquest by Joshua, that is the conquest of Israel. Moses never went into the land of Israel, but they give place names from that land. Hewitt recognizes that some updates were made and slight corrections were made by his successor Joshua and maybe by the final editor being Ezra. However, he maintains that the fundamental truth and authenticity of the authorship is still intact despite these corrections. After proving that the Old Testament books are true and written by the authors traditionally ascribed to them, Hewitt moves on to address prophecy. Remember, he's trying to prove the truth of the Christian Bible, not just the Hebrew Old Testament. So he actually lists Old Testament prophecies that are traditionally understood as messianic with passages from the New Testament. Messianic being they prophesy about the coming Messiah in a Christian worldview, that is to say, they prophesy about Jesus. So he places all of these Old and New Testament passages side by side to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Let me not make light of this. There are almost 300 pages of Old Testament prophecies next to their New Testament fulfillment. You heard that. 300 pages of comparison between the Old Testament prophecies and New Testament fulfillments. So what is the contribution I'm pointing at here? I'm trying to say that Hewitt is a man between worlds. He is a great Renaissance humanist with broad knowledge of ancient texts and world cultures. He knows rationalism and can logic his way around with some of the top philosophers of his day. However, he's also a very conservative Christian. He tries to marry his conservative faith with the logic of his day. 
But let's follow the logic all the way down here. There is one true God. There's one true law through Moses. So everything else in the world must be a copy of this true and holy work. If you want to maintain the purity of the Mosaic law, borrowing can happen in only one direction. If Moses borrowed from someone else, is it the word of God? In Hewitt's mind, no. Therefore, everyone else must have borrowed from Moses. This logic makes sense. Honestly, many scholastic scholars of the medieval era would have agreed with this wholeheartedly. However, they did not use the same exacting critical thought that Hewitt did. A scholastic scholar would have said that God gave the law to Moses so everything else must be a pale copy of this perfect divine law. However, in Hewitt's day, that would not fly. And honestly, Hewitt was far too brilliant to fall for that shallow of an argument. Instead, he dug deeply into other law traditions to show similar laws and argue for borrowing. He analyzed the mechanics of transmission to explain how the books could have traveled across vast distances, especially when it is well known that the Israelites did not sail or engage in much distant trade. He was using all of the new developments in historical knowledge and the global exploration of his day to uphold a very traditional viewpoint. So this is where I'm going to leave us today. Hewitt was between the medieval scholastic tradition and the early modern critical thinking tradition. He used the critical thinking skills that he had learned in his study of philosophy, math, and science to argue in favor of very traditional scholastic viewpoints on the Old Testament. So next time, tune in as we discuss John Spencer. He is a contemporary of Pierre Daniel Hewitt, but pushes back against his traditional leanings. He questions the historical moves that Hewitt makes and comes to an entirely different conclusion on the history of the Pentateuch. Thank you for listening to Old Testament Studies and unacademic modern history. If you'd like to contact me with episode ideas, questions, comments, or just deeper discussion about Old Testament or ancient Hebrew linguistic scholarship, feel free to email me at modernoldtestamentstudies at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening.